The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like Dock you. Dock workers, truck drivers, forklift operators, tugboat deckhands, ship's pilots and crane operators rarely make the news. In fact, the only time we hear about them is in those rare cases when something stops working the way it does 99.9% .9 of the time. Duncan Wilson, the VP of Environment and External Affairs at the Port of Vancouver, says these are the people who make our lives work. They are the lifeblood of the country, the province, the region, and our city. And they're so good at their job, sometimes they get forgotten. Despite that, their work has impacts that reach as far away as Europe, Asia, and across North America. But it's work that doesn't sparkle the way high-tech does, so it's easily overlooked. Wilson says the Port of Vancouver is a shining jewel on the west coast of North America. No other port is as diversified, as a, nor has a gateway like Van Vancouver. The port is so vital to Vancouver that it generates close to 1% of the national GDP. The port employs more than 40,000 people and it is linked to more than 100,000 supply chain jobs. I invited Duncan Wilson to join me for a conversation that matters about the role and value of our gateway port. Duncan, welcome. Thank you, Stu. Why do you think it is that sometimes we go, oh yeah, the port's out there, we see all the ships and so on, but we don't realize how vitally important it is to the economy, locally, but nationally as well? It's some, in some ways, it can be a little out of sight, out of mind. I mean, other than the ships at anchor, um, folks don't often get up close to the port operations. I know whenever we take people, we take people who've lived in the city for their entire life and we take them out on a harbor tour and they're blown away by how much uh, industry there is and how much port operations there, there are out there. But they're not, they're not as readily visible. You see them sort of off in the background, but that's, that's, that's I think, part of the, the secret. So give me a sense of the scope of the Port of Vancouver, because we say Port of Vancouver, of course, you think the city of Vancouver, but it's way more than that. It is. We touch 16 different municipalities in the Lower Mainland. There's no port anywhere in the world that touches anything remotely like that. In fact, I don't think I've encountered one that touches more than a couple or three. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It makes for a challenging environment because you have 16 different councils and 16 different agendas. And to be honest, I mean, the reason we're, we, we have a federal mandate is because trade is a national responsibility. Communities tend to be more focused on some of their more local, local needs, uh, uh, housing and, and, and other things, which, albeit important, um, can you know, take away from what we're trying to achieve in terms of the trade agenda. So the port, you just said it has a national uh, status. Explain that to me, because I think, well, it's an extension of the city of Vancouver. It's not. So port authorities are independent, um, uh, largely autonomous uh, uh, entities that, although we are, um, we are a creature of the federal government, um, and we're accountable to the Minister of Transport, we're designed to operate independently. And the Canada Marine Act very specifically, you know, sets out our objectives as, as to facilitate Canada's trade policy priorities in a manner that protects the environment, uh, ensures a high level of safety, competition, and considers input from communities. So we're actually required to, to work with, with those, and we do, we work a lot. We have a large team of, of folks who are working with municipalities and communities every day. So <laughs> considers input from those uh, communities, does that mean that ultimately the decision is still in your hands? 
ultimately, but we need to have support from, from communities in order to continue to grow. So there's a natural, a natural tension there, and we do our best to accommodate uh, uh, what local communities, to, to meet their aspirations and their needs. We've done that with a, a lot of the gateway infrastructure projects that we're building around the region, in addition to acting as debottlenecking projects for trade and, and improving uh, fluidity of rail cargo and, and, and road. Uh, they also do things that be provide benefits to communities. So they'll provide bicycle paths. They'll separate. They'll they'll uh, stop people having to wait a, at a light for a passing train for 20 minutes. They're, so they're so build an overpass. Yeah. Or yeah. So well, and that becomes the responsibility of the port. We we lead a lot of those projects. We're building a, nearly a billion dollars worth of infrastructure around the Lower Mainland right now. That's just like that. And the purpose is to facilitate the movement of goods. It's to speed the, the, the flow of cargo through the gateway. I mean, we have limited land and we need to make the most efficient use of our assets that we possibly can. So the um, uh, part of the solution there is, is uh, building the infrastructure. So in these cases, for example, um, you know, if you need to create a new rail siding that's close to a, an important bridge crossing, uh, that railway may go across several intersections. So these projects do things like they'll remove those crossings and build overpasses instead so that the community is not inconvenienced by the, by the trade, but we're able to handle more volume. And so we've got a number of those projects around the Lower Mainland that we're advancing right now. So I think about when, um, what was it, Powell Street or Cordova or whatever that was shut down for about a year and there was that new that was overpass. Us. That was you. That was us. See, yeah. I thought it was yeah. the city of Vancouver. It was us in partnership with the city, but it was one of the projects that was as, as part of the, the um, trade quarter funding. So we, one of the things, we, port authorities are not, we're not taxpayer funded. We, we operate on our own, on our own revenues. So, um, uh, and we reinvest all of our revenues back into, into the gateway. But what the federal government can do is they can invest into some common infrastructure. So for example, the federal government under the National Trade Quarter Fund will f fund typically up to a third of some of this common user infrastructure. So like these overpasses that benefit trade generally, benefit communities. And the role that the Port Authority plays is the convener. We get the, the railways together, the communities together, and work with the federal government to bring that funding to life in the form of new infrastructure. So does your reach on building that uh, transportation infrastructure only go into the lower mainland? Well, that's a very live conversation right now. It's just how far should we, how far should we be building these things well, right now? Well, you need to get all the way out because I have been, uh, I've experienced the bottlenecking that happens just on the highways. Yeah. Uh, and I can't help but think that that would have some impact on being able to put forward a, a legitimate case to shippers that Vancouver is uh, their better alternative to come yeah. through. So the first priority is, is definitely in the Lower Mainland, and that's where the focus is, because that's where the majority of the congestion is. And to, just to give you an idea of how important the infrastructure is here in the Lower Mainland, when we applied to the National Trade Quarter Fund, we didn't just get support from British Columbia, from industry, from, from, from others here. We got support across the country. So the governments of Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan all supported those asks that, for, for money, for federal money to be spent here in the Lower Mainland because they recognize how much it benefits them. I gotta get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you.
So we, you touched on a point uh, earlier that there are two national railways that are uh, serving the Port of Vancouver. How important is that rail link? It's critical and we saw with the, with the uh, extreme weather events last year, both the fires and the floods, what happens when rail can go down. Um, and um, I mean, we're, we're fortunate that both railways are incredibly good at building infrastructure because when you saw what the, the damage that, that happened as a result of those floods, it I was mean, amazing. We all looked at it and thought, oh my gosh, we're really in trouble. Like, and they, in weeks, in some cases in days, they had the infrastructure back up and operating in, in the worst case weeks. And it's just remarkable what, what can be done. So we're hugely reliant on them. Fortunately, they're, 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 they're pretty resilient. Uh, but there are limits and you know events like like we experienced last year really highlighted well the, over the last few years we have really highlighted some of the things that are weaknesses in our international supply chain that need to be addressed such as well resilience so for example um, uh, what what happens is that um, when that kind of infrastructure is, is is cutting us off from the rest of canada the ships are still coming with the with the cargo. Right. Where do you put the cargo? Where so, do you park the ships? Yeah. So we were having we were having ships, and we had container ships anchored throughout the Gulf Islands. That first of all, you should never see a container ship at anchor. Unfortunately, over the last couple of years, that's been a fairly common occurrence, just because of the huge volumes. But then that was made worse uh, as a result of the the flooding last year. And so what happens is those containers, the the marine terminals become full and the off-dock facilities become full, where this sort of places off the port where containers go. Um, and uh, as those fill up, where do you put those containers? So we, and we don't have, we have a, 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 a industrial land crisis in the Lower Mainland where there isn't enough land. So it's not as though there's, you know, there are alternate facilities. So for example, just one example of what we had to do there is we had to stand up. We got some, some, some support from Transport Canada to do this a marine terminal site that we're reserving for a future bulk marine terminal, we had to make, turn that into an empty container storage yard very quickly to just take some of this, this surge in capacity. Now, say another extreme event happens in five years, six years, and maybe that terminal will be developed. So where are we going to put those containers then? That's one of the things that we need. That's an example of the kind of resilience we need to build into the system. So we need to have that surge capacity. Um, and there's not a good business case for it. Like, it probably, if you talk to the railways and others, they, they'd be like, you know, they'd probably like to, to know it's there. But, but they don't want to invest in so, it. Yeah. So we have to have that conversation about how much of the supply, ch supply chain re resilience needs to be supported by, by the public and how much of it needs to be supported by industry. And I think that's going to be part of the discussion that happens over the, over the next while. Not just here, mm -hmm. but in Eastern Canada. Because this, this, this even more recently, uh, what we saw is uh, a backlog of containers in, in Toronto and Montreal, which prevented us from receiving containers here. Railways weren't able to take containers because they knew their, the yards were full in Eastern Canada. So problems in Eastern Canada created backlogs here. So it's not just a, it's not just a lower mainland issue. It's something that needs to be looked at across the supply chain. Okay, what are potential solutions to this? Because with it being such a vital uh, part of the economy, as I mentioned in the uh, intro, we have to be addressing these issues. We're not growing more land here in, in the Lower Mainland, and we got 
mountain range after mountain range between here and Alberta. Like, how do we find the ability to continue to absorb this incoming cargo, break it out, and then get it to the places that it needs to go? Well, I think building in, you know, the resilience at both ends of the supply chain so that we have that surge capacity when we need it. Um, continued investment in infrastructure, as we've seen. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, the, you know, I think a big piece of this will be doing what we can to harden the existing corridors mm -hmm. as much as possible. Uh, there'll obviously be limits to, to what can be done there, but, but that obviously will be important. And data and technology is also really important. So one of the things that we can do that's not so much about extreme, extreme weather events, but it's more about just making more use of the assets that we have is being more efficient about using them. Mm -hmm. So um, the Port Authorities, um, among other things, were leading a supply chain visibility project with Transport Canada and the Port of Prince Rupert uh, to get 95% visibility of all cargo moving in and out of the port. And then that coupled with an, with an active vessel traffic management program that's also being led to get um, a better, better handle and management over the ships coming in uh, to port when their cargoes are going to be ready so that it's closer to it it's hard to make it just in time but it's you know you don't have a ship just sitting there for for 20 days when right. its cargo is nowhere near the port yeah um, those kinds of things um, over time are going to really help and they're going to help us extract uh, more volume through the supply chain and also reduce some of the impacts on communities this is our second break we'll be back in a moment the production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. You mentioned Prince Rupert. How important then is this relationship between the Port of Prince Rupert and the Port of Vancouver? 
Prince Rupert's essential. I mean, we need we need the the expansions that Prince Rupert is doing. We need we need them there. We need the expansions that we've got underway here in Vancouver. Um, and right now, you know, Rupert is advancing container expansion. We're advancing a couple of projects in container expansion, um, and we need both. And um, it's interesting. The the um, week before last, I was in Asia meeting with shipping lines. And uh, we're just finishing a completion of, we're just completing the uh, expansion of the Centerm container terminal. That's yeah. the one in downtown Vancouver that's closest to Canada Place. Uh, that terminal, that project we're doing in partnership with DP World, and that's the terminal operator. It's a, a 600,000 20-foot equivalent unit. That's how we measure containers, TEU. Yeah. 600,000 TEU expansion of that terminal. Half of the capacity has already been made available. At the end of this year, that project will complete, and the other half will be available. When I was in Asia, every single shipping line, without exception, is circling, wanting that remaining capacity. So that was supposed to buy us three years of capacity for the West Coast, and it's probably going to be full you know, before it opens. Before it opens. So, <laughs> so does that cause concern when you are talking to those shipping companies when they are saying, I, we want to come through Vancouver? Yeah. Um, but it does, and I mean the the alternative is to go if they can't get in through Vancouver or Rupert is to go through U.S. gateways, and for some of them it makes more sense to go Vancouver than Rupert because just because of the nature of the cargo they're 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 bringing in because there maybe we've got you know a large urban population we have off dock logistics and, and things we're a slightly different situation than Rupert where most of Rupert's rail will go directly inland yes. a lot of ours gets unpacked here restuffed and redistributed um, so but. You know, Rupert's, if, if Vancouver's full, we, we need our overflow to go to Rupert. If it doesn't go to Rupert, it's going to go through the U.S. I've heard that Nanaimo may uh, be uh, considered as an opportunity to take some of that overflow. Are there plans to uh, start to develop into Nanaimo? Nanaimo is a really, it's interesting. We saw during, um, uh, when we were having all of this, this huge flood of cargo, um, we, well, you might remember a while ago there was a container ship that had a fire off the coast yep. and we needed that container ship to, to go somewhere to dock and the fire had been put out and needed to go somewhere to dock and um, if it came into Vancouver to one of our container terminals it would have tied up our capacity here mm -hmm. uh, because it would have to sit at berth for a while, there would be inspections and it would, it would be cause delays and Nanaimo normally couldn't receive that ship because it's not a, I can't remember what the term is, but it's not a, a suffrage port, I think is what it's called, mm. where they can, they have CBSA officers and they are ex they're able to receive that, that uh, international cargo. Within a couple of days, we got that changed <laughs> <laughs> so that Nanaimo could receive that vessel. So I think there is a role for Nanaimo. There is, um, uh, one of the things we do see is we see short sea shipping. So DP World, for example, does short sea shipping. Uh, between its uh, facilities here, both on the river and uh, um, Centurm and Nanaimo. And C-SPAN also operates uh, short sea shipping from the Fraser River to Nanaimo. So it does have a role. It's, it's um, maybe not as much of a hub role, but it has a role. So I also mentioned the jobs that are available. Um, we're looking at a, uh, you know, an employer, uh, situation where they're going, we need people. What kinds of jobs and how, I guess, good are they as long-term employment for people so they can maybe put the port on the radar saying, yeah, I could work there. 
supply chain jobs tend to be highly highly paid and and unionized so they're good paying jobs <laughs> that allow you to afford housing in the lower mainland well i understand those crane operators make uh some pretty good money <laughs> so it's it's there's no secret that uh, the port industry is a is a is a good place to work in terms of your compensation and you know but you know they're still and so are the railways too yeah i know the railways though notwithstanding that are still having challenges getting getting their employee base back up to where it needs to be uh, but the the economic opportunities for people getting into into those kinds of jobs are good, um, and they're the kinds of jobs that you you can you can you know you can actually earn a decent living and live in the Lower Mainland on. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. I talked about uh, the overall economic uh, generation from the port being close to 1% nationally. What is the value of goods that are passing through the port of Vancouver on a daily basis? Uh, I think it's in the neighborhood of about $700 million. Um, $700 million? $755 million dollars a day. A day? A day. It's it wasn't that long ago that it was $500 million, and I thought that was a lot. <laughs> 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 Where do you envision that's going? Like, what are we going to see here? Well, with it, when you see, I mean, um, it used to be all about China. Now what we're seeing is we're see seeing increasing trade with other Asian economies, with Vietnam and others. Um, we're Canada's part of the CPTPP. We have free trade agreements with other countries. Um, uh, we're also uh, an economy and a country that, that people want to do business with. Um, we very much get that when we're like this recent trip in Asia, you hear that. Yeah. And so, um, 
we're reliable, we're stable, and so I think we're we're seeing a very positive trend uh, in those from the from that region. What I think will temper it in the in the nearer term is just uh, whatever happens with the broader economy. Yeah. So we are seeing a softening right now. Um, so, for example, in the container sector, we're seeing uh, a softening of shipping rates, which is a, a big relief to many because they've been, right. they've been through the roof. So they're now coming down, and we'll probably see a normalization in sort of uh, the, the cargo volumes, mm -hmm. which is good because we need a little bit of breathing space to get the infrastructure in place. So uh, just to wrap up, part of your responsibility is environment. H how important is it to the port to be able to continue to be uh, putting in place uh, processes and programs that mitigate the environmental impact that shipping has? It's critical. So we're not... Whether we make a decision on a project on our own or whether we have to take the, a project through a full environment, a federal environmental review, um, the Port Authority is not allowed to make decisions that cause a significant adverse environmental effect. So we must find ways to, to do that. And I think we we in fact do a lot more um, than offset when it look when it comes to building projects. We have uh, a long track record, for example, of building fish habitat to offset against port development. And in some cases, like for example with our Terminal 2, I think we're talking about 140 football fields worth of new fish habitat. Mm -hmm. So we're very good at doing that, and that's actually something we do in partnership with First Nations. So it's, 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 it's doubly rewarding. It's rewarding in terms of the, 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 uh, the health of the fish and, and um, uh, thriving species, and it's also very rewarding in terms of the partnerships with the indigenous communities on those projects. The other, another really good example um, is our ECHO program. So we lead a program to reduce underwater noise from ships that would otherwise negatively impact uh, southern resident killer whales, endangered species, ability to feed and forage. So what, um, with, with this program, we have, we've assembled the largest under, underwater database, non-naval database, of underwater noise from ships in the world. Mm. And so we are able to uh, identify what vessel types make what kind of noise. And so every year we run slowdowns uh, to, and depending on your vessel type, we ask you to slow down to a certain uh, speed where whales are active, when whales are active, uh, to reduce the impact on whales. And that one program, for example, has reduced the sound intensity on whales by up to 55%. So, like, we're, and it's, it's something that we're particularly proud of, but that's an example of the kind of thing that we need to continue to do um, to make sure that if trade is going to grow, that it's not having a negative effect on the environment. The port's such a vital part of our lives, and I, I thank you for just giving us a little glimpse into it. I, I want to talk to you longer, but um, you know, only have so much time. It, it truly is uh, a wonderful port that we have here. We're very, very lucky, and I think we take that for granted every day, and we need more people to, to understand the value of this. I think yeah. the, the last couple of years have really shown people the yeah. importance of the supply chain. Well, thanks for coming in and giving us a glimpse into your world. Absolutely. Glad to be here, Stu.
The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like Dock you. Dock workers, truck drivers, forklift operators, tugboat deckhands, ships pilots and crane operators rarely make the news. In fact, the only time we hear about them is in those rare cases when something stops working the way it does 99.9% .9 of the time. Duncan Wilson, the VP of Environment and External Affairs at the Port of Vancouver says, these are the people who make our lives work. They are the lifeblood of the country, the province, the region, and our city. And they're so good at their job, sometimes they get forgotten. Despite that, their work has impacts that reach as far away as Europe, Asia, and across North America. But it's work that doesn't sparkle the way high-tech does, so it's easily overlooked. Wilson says the Port of Vancouver is a shining jewel on the west coast of North America. No other port is as diversified, as a, nor has a gateway like Van Vancouver. The port is so vital to Vancouver that it generates close to 1% of the national GDP. The port employs more than 40,000 people and it is linked to more than 100,000 supply chain jobs. I invited Duncan Wilson to join me for a conversation that matters about the role and value of our gateway port. Duncan, welcome. Thank you, Stu. Why do you think it is that sometimes we go, oh yeah, the port's out there, we see all the ships and so on, but we don't realize how vitally important it is to the economy, locally, but nationally as well? It's some, in some ways, it can be a little out of sight, out of mind. I mean, other than the ships at anchor, um, folks don't often get up close to the port operations. I know whenever we take people, we take people who've lived in the city for their entire life and we take them out on a harbor tour and they're blown away by how much uh, industry there is and how much port operations there, there are out there. But they're not, they're not as readily visible. You see them sort of off in the background, but that's, that's, that's I think, part of the, the secret. So give me a sense of the scope of the Port of Vancouver, because we say Port of Vancouver, of course, you think the city of Vancouver, but it's way more than that. It is. We touch 16 different municipalities in the Lower Mainland. There's no port anywhere in the world that touches anything remotely like that. In fact, I don't think I've encountered one that touches more than a couple or three. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It makes for a challenging environment because you have 16 different councils and 16 different agendas. And to be honest, I mean, the reason we're, we, we have a federal mandate is because trade is a national responsibility. Communities tend to be more focused on some of their more local, local needs, uh, uh, housing and, and, and other things, which, albeit important, um, can you know, take away from what we're trying to achieve in terms of the trade agenda. So the port, you just said it has a national uh, status. Explain that to me, because I think, well, it's an extension of the city of Vancouver. It's not. So port authorities are independent, um, uh, largely autonomous uh, uh, entities that, although we are, um, we are a creature of the federal government, um, and we're accountable to the Minister of Transport, we're designed to operate independently. And the Canada Marine Act very specifically, you know, sets out our objectives as, as to facilitate Canada's trade policy priorities in a manner that protects the environment, uh, ensures a high level of safety, competition, and considers input from communities. So we're actually required to, to work with, with those, and we do. We work a lot. We have a large team of, of folks who are working with municipalities and communities every day. So <laughs> considers input from those uh, communities. Does that mean that ultimately the decision is still in your hands? 
ultimately, but we need to have support from, from communities in order to continue to grow. So there's a natural, a natural tension there, and we do our best to accommodate uh, uh, what local communities, to, to meet their aspirations and their needs. We've done that with a, a lot of the gateway infrastructure projects that we're building around the region, in addition to acting as de-bottlenecking projects for trade and, and improving uh, fluidity of rail cargo and, and, and road. Uh, they also do things that be provide benefits to communities. So they'll provide bicycle paths. They'll separate. They'll they'll uh, stop people having to wait a, at a light for a passing train for 20 minutes. They're, so they're so build an overpass. Yeah. Or something. yeah. So oh, and that of, becomes the responsibility of the port. We we lead a lot of those projects. We're building a, nearly a billion dollars worth of infrastructure around the Lower Mainland right now. That's just like that. And the purpose is to facilitate the movement of goods. It's to speed the, the, the flow of cargo through the gateway. I mean, we have limited land and we need to make the most efficient use of our assets that we possibly can. So the um, uh, part of the solution there is, is uh, building the infrastructure. So in these cases, for example, um, you know, if you need to create a new rail siding that's close to a, an important bridge crossing, uh, that railway may go across several intersections. So these projects do things like they'll remove those crossings and build overpasses instead so that the community is not inconvenienced by the, by the trade, but we're able to handle more volume. And so we've got a number of those projects around the Lower Mainland that we're advancing right now. So I think about when, um, what was it, Powell Street or Cordova or whatever that was shut down for about a year and there was that new that was overpass. Us. That was you. That was us. See, yeah. I thought it was yeah. the city of Vancouver. It was us in partnership with the city, but it was one of the projects that was as, as part of the, the um, trade quarter funding. So we, one of the things, we, port authorities are not, we're not taxpayer funded. We, we operate on our own, on our own revenues. So, um, uh, and we reinvest all of our revenues back into, into the gateway. But what the federal government can do is they can invest into some common infrastructure. So for example, the federal government under the National Trade Quarter Fund will f fund typically up to a third of some of this common user infrastructure. So like these overpasses that benefit trade generally, benefit communities. And the role that the Port Authority plays is the convener. We get the, the railways together, the communities together, and work with the federal government to bring that funding to life in the form of new infrastructure. So does your reach on building that uh, transportation infrastructure only go into the lower mainland, or does it extend out further throughout the province? Well, that's a very live conversation right now. It's just how far should we, how far should we be building these things well, right now? Well, don't you need to get all the way out? Because I have been, uh, I've experienced the bottlenecking that happens just on the highways. Yeah. Uh, and I can't help but think that that would have some impact on being able to put forward a, a legitimate case to shippers that Vancouver is uh, their better alternative to come yeah. through. So the first priority is, is definitely in the Lower Mainland, and that's where the focus is, because that's where the majority of the congestion is. And to, just to give you an idea of how important the infrastructure is here in the Lower Mainland, when we applied to the National Trade Quarter Fund, we didn't just get support from British Columbia, from industry, from, from, from others here. We got support across the country. So the governments of Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan all supported those asks that, for, for money, for federal money to be spent here in the Lower Mainland because they recognize how much it benefits them mm -hmm. to be able to get their, their cargo, get their grain, get their potash uh, out to market. i got to get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back.
The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So we, you touched on a point uh, earlier that there are two national railways that are uh, serving the Port of Vancouver. How important is that rail link in the overall mix? It's critical and we saw with the, with the uh, extreme weather events last year, both the fires and the floods, what happens when rail can go down. Um, and um, I mean, we're, we're fortunate that both railways are incredibly good at building infrastructure because when you saw what the, the damage that, that happened as a result of those floods, it I was mean, amazing. We all looked at it and thought, oh my gosh, we're really in trouble. Like, and they, in weeks, in some cases in days, they had the infrastructure back up and operating in, in the worst case weeks. And it's just remarkable what, what can be done. So we're hugely reliant on them. Fortunately, they're, 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 they're pretty resilient. Uh, but there are limits and mm -hmm. you know events like like we experienced last year really highlighted well the, over the last few years we have really highlighted some of the things that are weaknesses in our in our national supply chain that need to be addressed such as well resilience so for example um, uh, what what happens is that um, when that kind of infrastructure is, is is cutting us off from the rest of canada the ships are still coming with the with the cargo. Right. Where do you put the cargo? Where so, do you park the ships? Yeah. So we were having we were having ships, and we had container ships anchored throughout the Gulf Islands. That first of all, you should never see a container ship at anchor. Unfortunately, over the last couple of years, that's been a fairly common occurrence, just because of the huge volumes. But then that was made worse uh, as a result of the the flooding last year. And so what happens is those containers, the the marine terminals become full and the off-dock facilities become full, where there's sort of places off the port where containers go. Um, and uh, as those fill up, where do you put those containers? So we, and we don't have, we have a, 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 a industrial land crisis in the Lower Mainland where there isn't enough land. So it's not as though there's, you know, there are alternate facilities. So for example, just one example of what we had to do there is we had to stand up. We got some, some, some support from Transport Canada to do this a marine terminal site that we're reserving for a future bulk marine terminal, we had to make, turn that into an empty container storage yard very quickly to just take some of this, this surge in capacity. Now, say another extreme event happens in five years, six years, and maybe that terminal will be developed. So where are we gonna put those containers then? That's one of the things that we need. That's an example of the kind of resilience we need to build into the system. So we need to have that surge capacity. Um, and there's not a good business case for it. Like, it probably if you talk to the railways and others, they, they'd be like, you know, they'd probably like to, to know it's there. But, but they don't want to invest in so, it. Yeah. So we have to have that conversation about how much of the supply, ch supply chain re resilience needs to be supported by, by the public and how much of it needs to be supported by industry. And I think that's going to be part of the discussion that happens over the, over the next while. Not just here, mm -hmm. but in Eastern Canada. Because this, this, this even more recently, uh, what we saw is uh, a backlog of containers in, in Toronto and Montreal, which prevented us from receiving containers here. Railways weren't able to take containers because they knew their, the yards were full in Eastern Canada. So problems in Eastern Canada created backlogs here. So it's not just a, it's not just a lower mainland issue. It's something that needs to be looked at across the supply chain. Okay, what are potential solutions to this? Because with it being such a vital uh, part of the economy, as I mentioned in the uh, intro, we have to be addressing these issues. We're not growing more land here in, in the Lower Mainland, and we got 
mountain range after mountain range between here and Alberta. Like, how do we find the ability to continue to absorb this incoming cargo, break it out, and then get it to the places that it needs to go? Well, I think building in, you know, the resilience at both ends of the supply chain so that we have that surge capacity when we need it. Um, continued investment in infrastructure, as we've seen. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, the, you know, I think a big piece of this will be doing what we can to harden the existing corridors mm -hmm. as much as possible. Uh, there'll obviously be limits to, to what can be done there, but, but that obviously will be important. And data and technology is also really important. So one of the things that we can do that's not so much about extreme, extreme weather events, but it's more about just making more use of the assets that we have is being more efficient about using them. Mm -hmm. So um, the Port Authorities, um, among other things, we're leading a supply chain visibility project with Transport Canada and the Port of Prince Rupert uh, to get 95% visibility of all cargo moving in and out of the port. And then that coupled with an, with an active vessel traffic management program that's also being led to get um, a better, better handle and management over the ships coming in uh, to port when their cargoes are going to be ready so that it's closer to, it, it's hard to make it just in time, but it's, you know, you don't have a ship just sitting there for, for 20 days when right. its cargo is nowhere near the port. Yep. Um, those kinds of things um, over time are going to really help and they're going to help us extract uh, more volume through the supply chain and also reduce some of the impacts on communities. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. You mentioned Prince Rupert. How important then is this relationship between the Port of Prince Rupert and the Port of Vancouver? Prince Rupert's essential. I mean, we need we need the the expansions that Prince Rupert is doing. We need we need them there. We need the expansions that we've got underway here in Vancouver. Um, and right now, you know, Rupert is advancing container expansion. We're advancing a couple of projects in container expansion, um, and we need both. And um, it's interesting. The the um, week before last, I was in Asia meeting with shipping lines, and uh, we're just finishing a completion of we're just completing the uh, expansion of the Centrum container terminal. That's the one in downtown Vancouver that's closest to Canada Place. Uh, that terminal, that project, we're doing in partnership with DP World and that's the terminal operator. It's a, a 600,000 20-foot equivalent unit. That's how we measure containers, TEU. Yeah. 600,000 TEU expansion of that terminal. Half of the capacity has already been made available. At the end of this year, that project will complete and the other half will be available. When I was in Asia, every single shipping line without exception is circling, wanting that remaining capacity. So that terminal expansion was- Like they're wanting to lock down yeah. access to that. Yeah. So that was supposed to buy us three years of capacity for the West Coast, and it's probably going to be full, you know, before it opens. Before it opens. So, <laughs> so does that cause concern when you are talking to those shipping companies when they are saying, I, we want to come through Vancouver, Yeah. Um, but? It does. And I mean, the, the alternative is to go, if they can't get in through Vancouver or Rupert, is to go through U.S. gateways. And for some of them, it makes more sense to go to Vancouver than Rupert because just because of the nature of the cargo they're 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 bringing in, because there may be we've got you know a large urban population, we have off dock logistics and, and things. We're a slightly different situation than Rupert, where most of Rupert's rail will go directly inland. Yes. A lot of ours gets unpacked here, restuffed and redistributed. Um, so, but 
you know, Rupert's, if, if Vancouver's full, we, we need our overflow to go to Rupert. If it doesn't go to Rupert, it's going to go through the U.S. I've heard that Nanaimo may uh, be uh, considered as an opportunity to take some of that overflow. Are there plans to uh, start to develop into Nanaimo? Nanaimo is a really, it's interesting. We saw during, um, uh, when we were having all of this, this huge flood of cargo, um, we, well, you might remember a while ago, there was a container ship that had a fire off the coast. Yep. And we needed that container ship to, to go somewhere to dock. And the fire had been put out, needed to go somewhere to dock. And um, if it came into Vancouver to one of our container terminals, it would have tied up our capacity here. Mm -hmm. uh, because it would have to sit at berth for a while, there would be inspections, and it would, it would be cause delays. And Nanaimo normally couldn't receive that ship because it's not a, I can't remember what the term is, but it's not a, a suffrage port, I think is what it's called, mm. where they can, they have CBSA officers and they are ex they're able to receive that, that uh, international cargo. Within a couple of days, we got that changed <laughs> <laughs> so that Nanaimo could receive that vessel. So I think there is a role for Nanaimo. There is, um, uh, one of the things we do see is we see short sea shipping. So DP World, for example, does short sea shipping. Uh, between its uh, facilities here, both on the river and uh, um, Centrum and Nanaimo. And C-SPAN also operates uh, short sea shipping from the Fraser River to Nanaimo. So it does have a role. It's, it's um, maybe not as much of a hub role, but it has a role. So I also mentioned the jobs that are available. Um, we're looking at a, um, you know, an employer, uh, situation where they're going, we need people. What kinds of jobs and how, I guess, good are they as long-term employment for people so they can maybe put the port on the radar saying, yeah, I could work there. Supply chain jobs tend to be highly, highly paid and, and unionized. So they're good paying jobs <laughs> that allow you to afford housing in the lower mainland. Well, I understand those crane operators make uh, some pretty good money. <laughs> so it's, it's, there's no secret that uh, the port industry is a, is, a, is a good place to work in terms of your compensation. And, you know, but you know, they're still, and so are the railways too. Yeah. I know the railways, notwithstanding that, are still having challenges getting, getting their employee base back up to where it needs to be. Uh, but the the economic opportunities for people getting into into those kinds of jobs are good, um, and they're the kinds of jobs that you you can you can you know you can actually earn a decent living and live in the Lower Mainland on. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. You can do anything from high tech through to you know, tying up boats, I guess. Uh, like, the, the range must be so diverse um, that it's a good, a good life. Yeah, I think we, we, we tend to think of a longshore job as somebody who uh, is loading cargo onto ships or operating a crane. Yeah. A longshore job these days can be somebody sitting in an office looking at a computer console remotely operating a crane. It could be in the future, you could see that those could be technicians and, and things that, you know, as we see um, increases in innovation and some automa automation, those are, that's all still going to require labor. Mm -hmm. um, 
slightly different labor, but still going to require labor. So you'll see, I think you'll see more diversity in the mixture of, of, of the types of longshore jobs and uh, uh, supply chain jobs as we move into the future. Talking about the tech com component of this, how uh, accurate is the tracking of, let's say, one CCAN from ship to shore to breakout to where it's going? Are you able to provide real-time data, and then what's it take to be able to do that? So um, we have we have some of the data. Uh, uh, CBSA has a really good line of sight into a lot of that, but they unfortunately yeah. are not able to um, to share that data with us. Mm -hmm. But we do have agreements with both railways to share data, and that's extraordinary. And I think they're, the both the railways are seeing the 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 benefits to the whole system by doing that. And so what we need to do is we need to be encouraging all all parts. You know, we need to in, encourage uh, shippers in the grain sector and 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 others to start sharing data as well and so the answer is we have we have some visibility but the whole point of this this work that we're doing now is to get much better visibility of all of that i talked about uh, the overall economic uh, generation from the port being close to one percent nationally what is the value of goods that are passing through the port of vancouver on a daily basis uh, I think it's in the neighborhood of about seven hundred million. Um, seven hundred million. Seven hundred and fifty-five million dollars a day. A day. A day. It's it wasn't that long ago that it was five hundred million, and I thought that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you envision that's going? Like, what are we going to see here? Well, with it, when you see, I mean, um, it used to be all about China. Now, what we're seeing is we're seeing, seeing increasing trade with other Asian economies, with Vietnam and others. Um, we're Canada's part of the CPTPP. We have free trade agreements with other countries. Um, uh, we're also uh, an economy and a country that, that people want to do business with. Um, we very much get that when we're like this recent trip in Asia, you hear that. Yeah. And so um, we're reliable, we're stable. And so I think we're, we're seeing a very positive trend uh, in those, from, the, from that region. What I think will temper it in the in the nearer term is just uh, whatever happens with the broader economy. Yeah. So we are seeing a softening right now. Um, so, for example, in the container sector, we're seeing uh, a softening of shipping rates, which is a, a big relief to many because they've, right. been, they've been through the roof. So they're now coming down, and we'll probably see a normalization in sort of uh, the, the cargo volumes, mm -hmm. which is good because we need a little bit of breathing space to get the infrastructure in place. So uh, just to wrap up, part of your responsibility is environment. H how important is it to the port to be able to continue to be uh, putting in place uh, processes and programs that mitigate the environmental impact that shipping has? It's critical. So we're not... Whether we make a decision on a project on our own or whether we have to take the, a project through a full environment, a federal environmental review, um, the Port Authority is not allowed to make decisions that cause a significant adverse environmental effect. So we must find ways to, to do that. And I think we we've, we've in fact do a lot more um, than offset when it look when it comes to building projects. We have uh, a long track record, for example, of building fish habitat to offset against port development. And in some cases, like for example with our Terminal 2, I think we're talking about 140 football fields worth of new fish habitat. Mm -hmm. So we're very good at doing that, and that's actually something we do in partnership with First Nations. So it's, 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 it's doubly rewarding. It's rewarding in terms of the, 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 the uh, health of the fish and, 
and um, uh, thriving species, and it's also very rewarding in terms of the partnerships with the indigenous communities on those projects. The other, another really good example um, is our ECHO program. So we lead a program to reduce underwater noise from ships that would otherwise negatively impact uh, southern resident killer whales, endangered species, ability to feed and forage. So what, um, with, with this program, we have, we've assembled the largest under, underwater database, non-naval database, of underwater noise from ships in the world. Mm. And so we are able to uh, identify what vessel types make what kind of noise. And so every year we run slowdowns uh, to, and depending on your vessel type, we ask you to slow down to a certain uh, speed where whales are active, when whales are active, uh, to reduce the impact on whales. And that one program, for example, has reduced the sound intensity on whales by up to 55%. So, like, we're, and it's, it's something that we're particularly proud of, but that's an example of the kind of thing that we need to continue to do um, to make sure that if trade is going to grow, that it's not having a negative effect on the environment. The port's such a vital part of our lives, and I, I thank you for just giving us a little glimpse into it. I, I want to talk to you longer, but um, you know, only have so much time. It, it truly is uh, a wonderful port that we have here. We're very, very lucky, and I think we take that for granted every day, and we need more people to, to understand the value <laughs> of this. I think yeah. the, the last couple of years have really shown people the yeah. importance of the supply chain. Well, thanks for coming in and giving us a glimpse into your world. Absolutely. Glad yeah. to be here, Stu.